this morning. It's on page 1047, I believe, if you're using the Bibles in the seats. And um, we're looking at the story which picks up in verse 50 of Luke 23. What I really want to look at together this morning, which, which these verses point us toward, are two scenes from... Um, from the, the, the Easter story, the Easter events that we celebrate. The first scene ends on Saturday night, the evening before the resurrection. Jesus had been beaten within an inch of his life, covered in blood, flesh hanging off his back. They want, the, the Romans, the Roman executioners, they knew how to beat their victims. They wanted to make sure that those victims were weak enough that they didn't suffer too long when they were hung on the cross. Jesus was weak enough from his beating that afterwards he could not carry the cross piece that he was to be crucified upon. Someone else had to carry it for him. When they got to the place of execution, Jesus was then nailed to the cross using large nails, nailed right through him into the wood. And then he was hoisted upright, left to hang from those nails there for hours until suffocation slowly took place and Jesus died. Once he died, the Roman official in charge of crucifixion double-checked to verify that Jesus was dead. He had a soldier uh, pierce Jesus in the side with a spear and water and blood flowed out. This separation of the clear fluid from the blood was and is a medical indicator that death has taken place. And so the corpse was taken down and the body was given to a follower of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea, who wrapped the body in cloth together with about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes, and he placed the body in a tomb. In the front of the tomb, a huge stone was then rolled into place. On top of this, several soldiers were ordered to stand guard, and a Roman seal was placed on the stone. This seal was an official warning that this place must not be disturbed, lest what lest would happen to you what happened to the victim inside. Thus ends scene one. A dead man inside, beaten, stabbed, crucified, wrapped in cloth for burial, covered in spice, huge stone over the door, seal on stone, soldiers guarding entrance, nighttime, scene one. Now scene two. This is the scene which begins the next morning, Sunday morning. The stone is no longer over the entrance of the tomb. It's been moved aside and the seal has been broken. The soldiers have fled. The tomb is empty. The cloths that the body had been wrapped in with the spices are still there, but the body is not inside of them. The corpse is not there. Meanwhile, Jesus, the dead person, begins popping up alive in various places and to various persons. First to Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' followers, in the garden outside the tomb, she falls and she grabs Jesus' feet. Then to several other women, Then to two disciples of Jesus who are walking on the road to a nearby town called Emmaus. Then 
or, or uh, rather, uh, still with these two disciples, when they get to uh, the place, the home that they're going to in Emmaus, Jesus talks with the disciples. He breaks bread with them at dinner. Then next, Jesus appears to Peter, one of Jesus' followers. Then later, to ten of Jesus' disciples, and Jesus eats with them, but one of them named Thomas is missing. So then later, again, Jesus appears to the eleven disciples, including Thomas, and Jesus invites Thomas to touch the nail holes and to stick his fist into the holes in his side. Then Jesus appears to seven disciples who are fishing, and Jesus eats breakfast with them. Then later, he appears to 500 people. Then to James, probably Jesus' blood brother. Then again to 11 disciples as well as others when Jesus ascended from their sight. And then finally, Jesus appears to one of his enemies, a man named Saul of Tarsus. Thus ends scene two. Scene one, Jesus is dead in the tomb. Scene two, the tomb is empty and Jesus appears to many people alive. This is the amazing turn of events we celebrate at Easter. So question, what in the world happened between scenes one and two? How did we get from a dead man in a guarded tomb to an empty tomb and that man alive? How we answer that question is the basis on which our faith, the Christian faith, rests. And it's what I'd like to explore with us this morning. Obviously, we celebrate this morning our belief that God miraculously and genuinely raised Jesus from the grave. But of course, this is not the most likely explanation for what happened. People don't just rise from the dead, right? <laughs> so before we accept this explanation, it only makes sense to review other possible explanations to see if any of them are more likely. So let's review the other major competing explanations for what happened between scenes one and scene two. First explanation. Jesus was not really dead in scene one when he was placed in the tomb. He was just mostly dead. As Miracle Max put it so famously in The Princess Bride, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. In this case, the explanation goes, the Roman soldiers had been mistaken about how dead Jesus actually was. The brutal beating, the hours hanging on the cross, the stab of the spear in Jesus' side had not actually quite killed Jesus. He was still a little bit alive. Enough alive, in fact, over the next 36 hours to wriggle his way out from under the wines of cloth and the 75 pounds of spices. Uh, alive enough then to roll back from the inside the huge stone which covered the tomb. Alive enough to then overpower the soldiers guarding the tomb. Though Jesus had bled and had suffered and had, had nothing to eat or drink and no medical attention for the past two days. Yet after all that, by this explanation, Jesus was still alive enough, energetic enough, to then convince his surprised disciples that he had been powerfully and triumphantly raised from the dead. Sound feasible? 
not so much, which is one reason that it's never been a very popular explanation. Yet, uh, or, or rather, you can be sure that Roman executioners did not leave their victims in any position to accomplish such feats. So let's move on to a second possible explanation, which is that scene two happens at a different place than scene one. In other words, those who found the tomb empty early Sunday morning had gone mistakenly to the wrong tomb. Not hard to imagine. After all, it was dark when Jesus was buried, and it was dark again when the women went back there early Sunday morning. They simply confused one tomb for another. But question, for how long would this mistake last? How long would it take until someone found the right tomb, still locked up and guarded by soldiers? Right? If the right tomb was there, it was there. It wouldn't take long until someone pointed that out. And of course, if Jesus was still safely locked away in the right tomb, dead, he wasn't going to appear to anyone alive, right? So this explanation doesn't work. It doesn't explain the resurrection appearances. So then let's consider a third explanation. This explanation is that those who claimed they saw Jesus alive didn't really see Jesus, but rather they had a mass hallucination of some sort. A figment of, of their collective imaginations because they wanted Jesus to be alive so badly. License plate number... <laughs> They're on it. The ushers are on it. All right. Well, first of all, I, I have to admit here that, that while this idea has been raised, this idea of mass hallucination, psychologists aren't agreed on whether such a thing is even possible. Certainly, single individuals see hallucinations occasionally. Um, this is well documented. But whether lots of people all at once can see the same hallucination is hard to explain psychologically uh, how, how that would even be possible. And I if all these people did, what seems likely is that they'd all see something, or, or maybe through the power of suggestion think that perhaps they saw something, and then one of them would say what it was that they saw, and the others would go along and say, yeah, that's it, that, I saw that too. I if this is even possible, it it's certainly a very rare phenomenon. So... What are the chances that this could happen multiple times, each time different and unique? Sometimes involving some of the same people, sometimes involving other people, each time happening in a different location and in a different way. And these aren't just hazy, vague apparitions that everyone experienced and then they agreed that it was Jesus. No, there are details. There was food involved and conversations and fishing trips, and teaching, and instruction, and touch. And then, of course, there's the bare fact that either the tomb is empty or it isn't. All it takes is one person, anyone, at any point to go and look and report, no, the stone's still, still there, the soldiers are still there, the tomb's not empty, and the hallucination's over. Well, that leaves us with a fourth explanation, which is actually the oldest and the best known. And that is that the disciples of Jesus stole Jesus' body and lied about Jesus being alive. 
In fact, this one's right in the Bible, Matthew 28, 11 to 15. Some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Okay, so the disciples stole the body, and then presumably they lied, claiming that Jesus rose from the dead. While this explanation is a lot stronger than the other ones, let me mention three major problems with it. The first problem is that the disciples actually claim that women were the first witnesses to see Jesus alive, and nobody in that culture, if they were making up a lie, would say that women were the first witnesses. Because, you see, in that culture, uh, people were extremely patriarchal. Women's testimony in that culture was considered unreliable, so much so that it was not even accepted in court. In that culture, why put forward those who nobody would believe as your prime witnesses when you're making up the story? There's only one reason you would do that, and that is that it actually happened that way, and you were telling the truth. That Jesus chose, in, in, in radical contradiction to his culture, to that culture, Jesus chose to honor and to trust his female followers with the news of his resurrection by appearing to them first. That's the only explanation for it. Nobody back then would have made it up that way in that culture. The second problem with the explanation that the disciples made up the story of Jesus' resurrection is that the disciples did not themselves believe that Jesus could be raised. The disciples would not make up the lie that Jesus was resurrected because they themselves did not believe that resurrection was even something that could happen to Jesus. Now let me explain that because I realize that Jesus told the disciples ahead of time repeatedly that he would die and on the third day be raised again. But the disciples were the first to admit that they didn't get it. They didn't believe it. It didn't register. After all, Jesus was always talking in weird parables, and the disciples, as devoted Jews, did not believe in the kind of resurrection Jesus was talking about. They did not have a worldview. They did not have a religious belief system to comprehend the resurrection. Let me explain. Jews did believe in spirits and an afterlife at that time. And so the disciples could believe that when people died, in very rare instances, it was possible for the spirit or the ghost or the soul, whatever you want to call it, of that person to float around. And in very rare instances, someone might see this, and that would be a spooky, scary thing. But that is not what the disciples claimed they saw. The disciples are insistent it wasn't a ghost or, or Jesus' spirit that they experienced in scene two. No, it was the living, breathing Jesus who had a body, had nail holes in his hand, had a spear wound in his side, who could be touched, who could touch, who could eat food. Not a ghost, not a spirit, but a living person with a body. 
Now, as good Jews, the disciples also did believe something else. They believed that miracles could happen. They believed that in extremely, extremely rare cases, a great prophet could raise someone from the dead. After all, there are stories in the Old Testament of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, each raising a small boy from the dead. And there are, of course, stories of Jesus raising several people from the dead, a widow's son, a little girl, a man named Lazarus. But this also is not what the disciples are claiming happened to Jesus. First of all, this sort of miracle requires a great prophet. And in this case, there is none. It's the great prophet who's dead. That's the problem. (laughs) Second of all, this sort of miracle is only temporary. The dead person is raised. They live another 10, 20, 40, 50 years, and then they die again, and they're finished. This is not what the disciples claim about Jesus. No, what they claim is that Jesus is raised immortal forever. Not that he died, then came back temporarily through some great miracle, and then later died again. No, rather, they claim that Jesus died and went through death to eternal life on the other side through bodily resurrection. That's the kind of resurrection that scene two describes. That's the kind of resurrection the followers of Jesus are claiming, but did not believe could happen. Let me explain why the disciples did not believe in that sort of resurrection. Here's the key. The disciples did believe in the resurrection, the bodily resurrection to eternal life, but they did not believe that this resurrection would take place before the end of history. On the last day, at the end of history, then they believed God would raise the dead bodily. All the dead, not just Jesus, not just anyone, but rather everyone. Everyone at the end of history would be raised from the dead in their bodies on the last day to face God's judgment. And the righteous would enjoy eternal life forever while the wicked would face eternal separation from God. That is what they believed. That is the only kind of bodily resurrection the disciples believed in. At the end of history, involving everyone. The disciples did not believe that Jesus could or would be raised from the dead to eternal life all by himself on a random Sunday morning. And because they did not believe in this, they would not have made it up any more than you would make up that Jesus was reincarnated as Elvis if you do not believe in reincarnation. (laughs) People don't make up lies that go against their own deeply held beliefs, religious beliefs especially. And yet, after scene two takes place, the disciples wholeheartedly insist that they did, in fact, see Jesus raised bodily from the dead to eternal life. And so here's the third problem with the explanation that the disciples made up this lie. And that is that they then go out into the streets and start telling everyone that Jesus has been raised. They believe it so strongly that they insist on it, even when the religious leaders threaten them with death. The disciples believe it so strongly that they devote the rest of their lives to teaching this, to spreading this, and to uh, founding a giant worldwide movement based 
on the fact that they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily to eternal life. A movement which they found which benefits them with very little money. A movement which gets them thrown into prison. A movement which causes their families and loved ones to reject them and bring shame on them in the face of their communities. A movement which in the end claims most of their lives. The disciples give up their very lives. They give up everything they have for this movement based on their insistence that Jesus rose from the dead. How likely is it that they were lying about the whole thing the whole time? That they made it up and that they suffered torture and death for the sake of a lie that they knew wasn't true. Let me put it another way. On Friday, Jesus is arrested, beaten, and crucified. The disciples are scared and they all scatter. Peter, in fact, denies three times that he even knows Jesus. The disciples go into hiding. They're afraid. They huddle together behind locked doors, fearful that the authorities who killed Jesus will come for them as well. They're confused. They're despondent. They're devastated. They don't understand why Jesus let himself be killed. They can't believe that he's dead, even though he was supposed to be their king. They can't figure out what any of this means. They don't believe in resurrection, at least not until the very last day when all humanity is resurrected. Even when the women go to the tomb on Sunday morning, they're not going looking for a risen Christ. No, why do they go? They go with spices, looking for a dead body to embalm and mourn over. So how do we explain then that several days later, the disciples show up in public proudly and boldly proclaiming that Jesus was risen from the grave, that he's Lord, that all should believe in him? How do we explain this radical transformation? And how do we explain this transformation all the more so in the case of Saul of Tarsus? Because Saul was not a disciple of Jesus. Saul never had been. In fact, he was enemy number one of Jesus. He, of all people, did not want Jesus to rise from the dead. But then he too claimed that he met the risen Christ. And Paul turned around, Saul, who became Paul, named, renamed Paul, turned around and lived the rest of his life and devoted the rest of his energy to spreading the message that Jesus rose from the dead and was alive. Paul many times risked his life for this message and eventually gave his life for this message. How do we explain all that? How likely is it that it's a lie that all the disciples and even Saul made up? This is the reason, by the way, that many scholars and journalists and lawyers who have examined the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, often in order to prove that it's untrue and ridiculous, have come away convinced that Jesus really did rise from the dead. That the resurrection really is by far the strongest explanation for all the evidence we have about scene one and scene two. Well, so what? Does any of this really matter? Whether Jesus really did rise from the dead or not, what, what difference does it make? Why isn't it enough, like many churches teach, to, to just say, well, Jesus rose figuratively. That Jesus was so loving. Jesus was such an inspiration to his followers that, that when he died, they were sad. But, but his love and, 
and his memory proved greater than their sadness. That Jesus' love was so great that not even death could quench it. And so such churches teach on the first Easter, the Easter miracle was this. That Jesus' spirit rose in the hearts of his followers. And that made all the difference. What difference does it make for us to go further and, and, and insist that while, while, that's, um, while that's encouraging and that's heartwarming, that that's not all that happened? No, rather, Jesus literally did rise from the grave to eternal life. What difference does that make? Well, the difference it makes is this. Jesus' literal bodily resurrection makes following Jesus unlike every other religion which follows dead prophets or dead gurus. Because we worship, because we follow a living Savior, we worship and follow someone with real ears to hear our prayers, with real power to answer them. We worship a living Savior who really did overcome death and can give us real eternal life so that we too have overcome death. And we worship a real living victor who really did defeat evil and darkness and establish his good kingdom forever. We worship a living Lord who really can guide our lives and really can command us to live in the ways of his kingdom. What difference does the resurrection make? It makes as much difference as life does compared to death. And so we celebrate this movement, this morning, the good news. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.